0: Amy Meinzer and her new asteroid-hunting space telescope, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The announcement from NASA came in June. After years of advocacy, planning, proposals and disappointment, The agency gave the green light to what is now known as NEO Surveyor. This relatively small infrared telescope will help us discover the thousands of big space rocks that threaten our home world. Amy will be here to tell us about the project she leads. Later, we'll hear again from the Planetary Society's chief scientist. Bruce Betts will bring us another space trivia contest right after a scan of the current night sky and a random space fact. Happy 52nd lunar landing anniversary, everyone. I'm recording this week's show on July 20th, and there's now yet another reason to revere that date. Hours ago, Jeff Bezos and three companions climbed aboard a capsule that sat atop one of Blue Origin's New Shepard rockets. Minutes later, that rocket carried them above the Kármán line. The black of space was above the blue of Earth below. After four minutes of zero-g fun, the new space travelers experienced as much as five g's of deceleration before setting down in the Texas desert at a gentle one-mile-an-hour. 82-year-old Wally Funk nearly stole the show at the post-flight news conference. Wally was one of the Mercury 13, the group of women who trained as hard or harder than the famed Mercury 7. They were declared fully qualified for spaceflight and then saw their dreams crushed. Here's what Wally had to say after finally making it into space nearly 60 years later. Listen for the kiss on the cheek she shares with Jeff Bezos.
1: I can't tell you. I had such a good instructor. He took us through everything that we were going to do. So when I went up this morning, the noise wasn't quite as bad, and we went right on up, and I saw darkness. I thought I was going to see the world, but we weren't quite high enough. And I felt great, I felt like I was just laying down, I was just laying down, and I was going into space. And I want to thank you, sweetheart, because you made it possible for me. I've been waiting a long time to finally get it up there, and I've done a lot of astronaut training through the world, Russia, America, and I could always beat the guys on what they were doing because I was always stronger, and I've always done everything on my own. And I didn't do dolls. I did outside stuff. And I, and I flew airplanes. I had 19,000-some hours. I loved it. And I loved being here with all of you and your family. Uh, The the four of us. We had a great time. It was was wonderful. I want to go again, fast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On the night before the flight, a CNN host asked Jeff Bezos the question, all of us in the space game have gotten used to. Here's how it goes. With all the problems we need to solve here on Earth, many people wonder why money and time should be spent developing opportunities for paying customers to reach space.
2: They're largely right. We have to do both. You know, we have, there, we have lots of problems in the here and now on Earth, and we need to work on those. And we always need to look to the future. We've always done that as a, as a species, as a civilization. We have to do both. And uh, what our job at Blue Origin is to do, and what this uh, space tourism mission is about, is having a mission where we can practice so much that we get really good at operational space travel, more like a commercial airliner and less like what you think of as traditional space travel. If we can do that, then we'll be building a road to space for the next generations to do amazing things there. And those amazing things will solve problems here on Earth. Blue
0: Origin plans two more flights this year, as we did last week for Virgin Galactic. We offer our congratulations. There's more July 20th fun in the July 16 edition of the Downlink. We heard with great relief since our newsletter was issued that the Hubble Space Telescope has successfully transferred operations to a second computer, just as we heard it would from James Webb Space Telescope Project Manager Bill Oaks in the July 7 Planetary Radio. It's good to know our best eye on the universe is back in action. The U.S. House of Representatives has proposed a $25 billion budget for NASA in fiscal year 2022. That's a bit more than the Biden administration requested, and it includes money for Amy Meinzer's NEO Surveyor. Amy is a professor in the Lunar and Planetary Lab at the University of Arizona. The U of A tempted her away from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab about two years ago. She remains the principal investigator for the NEOWISE mission, an aging space telescope that was repurposed in 2013 for near-Earth object hunting. That was after the end of its first life as the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE. As you'll hear, NASA has given NEOWISE a two-year extension of its important work, but Amy has also spent years leading the effort to put a much more powerful asteroid hunter in space. What started as NEOCAM is now NEO Surveyor, and its approval by the Space Agency in June was a triumph for Amy, her mission team, and all of us who know how vital it will be for planetary defense. Amy joined me remotely a few days ago. Amy Meinzer, thank you so much for returning to Planetary Radio. Double congratulations are in order here. There was that July 1st NEOWISE extension announcement, two-year extension by NASA— Really, wasn't it an even bigger announcement three weeks earlier and kind of a a wonderful vindication of work that you have been leading for many years?
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. Uh, We are just really delighted to have been able to advance to the next phase of our mission development, um, which we call phase B or the preliminary design phase. Uh, it's a big deal for us because basically it means it's uh, we're out of the formulation phase and now we're into really getting into the serious parts of the design and fabrication even.
0: I'm going to ask you more about that in a few minutes, but I got to stick with this initial topic and sort of the entire field of finding NEOs, characterizing them, planetary defense. The road to this spacecraft, to this mission, Neo Surveyor, was, I don't have to tell you, long and hard. At least it looked that way from the outside. Were there times when you wondered if if the effort was worth it? I mean, you were at this for years.
3: Well, space is definitely a business for the very patient. I will say that <laughs> it's just and how yeah, it's just. I mean, it's it's just sort of the nature of the business that it takes a long time sometimes for space missions to to get going and pick up momentum and uh, eventually get you know get launched. But I think we've spent our time wisely. We've uh, really worked hard at trying to mature the technology that we required. Uh, which is in, in the infrared detectors. So these are the actual camera chips that allow the spacecraft to see the asteroids in the dark. So we've, uh, we've not been wasting our time. I'd say we've really gone and spent a lot of effort into refining the technology so that now that we are finally in the development phase, we are ready to go.
0: This is so much the message that I've heard from so many leaders of missions, principal investigators. Uh, in fact, just last week when I had the leads for the Veritas and Da Vinci missions on, also the long, hard road. It just seems to be the way the game is played. As you said, uh, patience is awfully important. I'm also thinking of uh, the work that my colleague Casey Dreyer has done. And Casey says hello, by the way. Terrific job of documenting how support for near-Earth object research and planetary defense has skyrocketed in the last few years, which also seems to be a vindication of what so many of us including NASA's own Planetary Defense Coordination Office have have worked toward our you have to be glad to see all of this.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the way I look at it is is that we as an as a science community need to do what we can to take care of the problems that fall within our domain uh you know our domain of expertise and this is an area that you know it's one of the things that we need to kind of cross off our list of worries and the best way to do that in my opinion is just go look for the asteroids and do a pretty thorough job of it Uh, and if we do that we can pretty much retire the risk that there's something out there that we don't know about so i think it's really good that uh that this is getting the necessary attention the amount of resources required are, are reasonable you don't have to move a mountain in order to go find the mountains in space But you do have to go do your homework, which I'm really glad to see we're going to try to do in a very thorough way.
0: Yeah. There are lots of places to go to read about the mission. We have a terrific NEO Surveyor page. At planetary.org. And there is a great uh, site hosted by the University of Arizona about the mission. But uh, please share your elevator speech about uh, (laughs) NeoSurveyor, what it's designed to do, how it will accomplish this uh, for, you know, the few people in this audience who may not know much about it.
3: Sure. Well, uh, the main thing to know is that the solar system is a really busy place. There are lots of uh, asteroids kind of swarming into the inner solar system, ranging in size from teeny little specks of harmless dust all the way up to mountains. The good news is that there are far fewer of the mountain-sized objects than there are of the really small ones. That's because uh, over time, the asteroids have collided and produced a lot of little pieces But even these little pieces, you know, if they're larger than about, say, 50 meters across, give or take, they can create some damage on the ground. So our goal is to go out and try to find the majority of objects that are big enough, say, bigger than about a football field size roughly, to cause really severe regional damage. So in other words, damage to a very large region. The NEO surveyor mission really is optimized for finding these objects when they're well away from the Earth, long before any potential encounters could take place. And that will allow us to find the objects, get good orbits for them, make reliable predictions of where they're going to go, and make out some basic information about their physical properties. How big are they? And maybe how reflective are their surfaces, if we can get some, uh, some additional data on them. So that, in a nutshell, is what the mission is designed to do, is to do a very comprehensive survey of what's in our near-solar neighborhood.
0: I think it's a terrific sign of the progress that has been made, that we have some idea of how many of these larger rocks are out there. I mean, I, I see the figure 25,000, but that's pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, we, we spent most of our time, human civilization, not even realizing that there were rocks up there in the sky that could fall on us. And, and now we know roughly how many we need to worry about.
3: Yeah, that's true. And so the 25,000 number comes from estimates based on the objects that we have discovered to date. Like I mentioned, there's a lot more of the smaller objects than there are of the truly, truly large ones, which is a good thing. We think that there's roughly about a thousand or so, give or take, of objects that are large enough to cause what we would call global extinction events, things that mm. can take out entire species just in one fell swoop and when you get down to the size of things that can cause sort of the regional level disasters say you know the size of southern california for example that's about the football field sized objects and we think there's roughly twenty five thousand of those for things that are big enough to have problems for an individual city many more mm. uh, the numbers just go up and in, in large numbers from there because there are a lot of a lot more small pieces but that said we have learned an awful lot about what's out there just from the surveys that we've done to date And that's given us a pretty good idea of kind of where we need to be aiming for in terms of characterizing and finding the rest of the population of interest.
0: I do not remember how big the uh, rock that exploded over Chelyabinsk was, which, you know, fortunately blew up in the air, but still demonstrated the damage that these can do.
3: Yeah, that was a really pretty small object. It's uh, estimated to have been somewhere between 17 to 20 meters across. Mm. And That's that's not very big at all. It's just the, the defining characteristic of these objects is that they move with just incredible speed with respect to the Earth. They're really going very fast, typically sort of maybe a few tens of thousands of miles per hour. That's where they get such a punch from. They just move really fast. And even a very small one can cause a, a good bit of damage if it makes it to the ground. Now, the good news is, on the small side, like this object that exploded over Chelyabinsk, the atmosphere does a really good job of screening out the majority of the, of the energy from the impact. And in the case of Chelyabinsk, it really did explode many miles above the surface of the Earth, and not that much of the energy actually made it to the ground, so there wasn't a big crater. But if the object is even a little bit larger than that, say 50 meters across, now instead of getting this sort of an airburst effect, now you can get a big crater in the ground, and we have a pretty spectacular example of that in Arizona that's uh, you know, known as Meteor Crater.
0: Which I highly recommend visiting. it. If, if you're not impressed by the power of these uh, space rocks uh, uh, before your visit. You will be after you uh, look over the edge of that crater. I read that you hope that Neo Surveyor will find about 90% of these 25,000 or so that are 140 meters and larger, which makes me wonder, what about the other 10%? Why, why will those be more difficult to detect?
3: Yeah, the good news part of it is we really think we can find the majority of these objects if we um, if we are able to operate for long enough. The last 10%, though, these are the ones that will be on the trickiest orbits for us. And I guess you can think of it as when you put up a new telescope to look for these things, you can sort of survey a bubble of space around your telescope. And that's how far you can see and how much volume you can see around you. In our case, we'll have a pretty big bubble with NEO Surveyor because it's a very sensitive telescope. It'll be able to look very far away. So the bubble is large, but it's not infinite. And Mm -hmm. to some extent, we have to wait for some of the objects to just kind of make it inside the zone that we can see. That last 10% are the objects that are going to be on the kind of most difficult orbits that will just stay just out of reach of our telescope. That said, uh, this is why planetary defense really is a team sport. You don't just mm. want to rely solely on one telescope. You want to have multiple different telescopes that all have, you know, a little bit of different strengths. Each one brings something different to the table, and, and that's how we're going to mop up those last ones.
0: I was surprised to see that uh, the NEO Surveyor telescope, the optics, really aren't that much bigger than what we already have in NEOWISE. Is this evidence of of the improvements in the detectors, as as you sort of hinted at?
3: Yes, that's an important point. So one of the neat things about looking for these objects at infrared wavelengths is you don't really need a very large mirror if you go into space and you can get the telescope nice and cold. Uh, in this case, the mirror for the Surveyor mission is only a little bit bigger than that of the primary mirror for Neo Wise, which is our existing space telescope that we have, uh, that's doing its best, but you know, is uh, not going to last a whole lot longer and also really isn't optimized for the task. The reason that Surveyor is so much more sensitive is, um, despite the fact that the mirror is only a little bit bigger, it really does have a much larger focal plane, meaning the, the camera chips. We just have a lot more of them. They're more sensitive. Uh, and it lets us cover more of the sky. Also, the other thing we're going to be doing a little differently is we'll be able to look over a much wider zone on the sky, and we can integrate for longer times. In other words, we can stare for longer periods of time than NEOWISE can. So these factors all combined make for a telescope that's altogether more sensitive to these asteroids than the existing one that we have is. And also, too, it'll hopefully be able to operate for a nice long time, so that means we'll have plenty of time to go out and look.
0: I keep hearing and seeing similarities to another space telescope, one that I visited, actually, just a couple of weeks ago. I'm thinking of the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, which is going to operate from Sun-Earth Lagrangian point 2, whereas uh, Neo Surveyor will be at uh, L1. They'll both have the advantage of being in these choice neighborhoods, which we can also talk about, but uh, they're both infrared telescopes. And like the James Webb uh, you're going to be able to do this work. You said the cold is important, but you don't have to bring along a whole bunch of refrigeration equipment or, or cryogenics that you might run out of. Uh, how, do you, how are you able to maintain the cold you need uh, to detect these infrared sources that are still pretty cool?
3: Well, that's the trick. So we are going to be out in the Sun-Earth L1 Lagrange point. So we'll be on the Lagrange point side that's closer to the sun uh, compared with James Webb, which will be on the opposite side. The difference for us is that rather than carrying active refrigeration, so either some cryogenics or a really fancy cooler uh, James Webb has a cooler. We're Hmm. going to do this purely passively. The way we will be getting cold is we have a big shiny sunshade on one side that has our solar panels. And then on the opposite side, we paint the spacecraft an incredibly dark black color. And essentially, that allows us to radiate the heat. So we do a combination. We reflect sun and try to keep as much of the sun off the spacecraft as we can. And then on the opposite side, we radiate the heat very efficiently into the deep cold of space. And that's how we're going to keep cool.
0: Does this mean that you can expect? Uh, one reason to expect a a pretty long life out of uh, Neosuvair?
3: Well, we sure hope so. With no active cryogens and no uh, cryocoolers on board, there's really nothing stopping us from lasting a pretty long time. This spacecraft does have propulsion. Um, It does have to do a little bit of station keeping to maintain the orbit, but it's pretty minimal. And, you know, knock on wood, uh, (laughs) we're going to get a nice long life out of it, just like we have for NEOWISE. How will
0: it actually make the detections? I mean, is it something similar to what we got used to the Kepler spacecraft doing, simply staring at a patch of sky for a long time and waiting to see if something crosses it?
1: That's
3: a very interesting question. So we will operate in a mode that is specifically optimized for finding the most hazardous near-Earth asteroids and comets. Uh, What we do is take a time series of exposures. So we look at the sky, and then we loop back some hours later, and then again and again and again. And then we're going to do it again in a couple weeks, roughly. So we have this very uh, kind of, I would say, elaborate scan pattern, although it's it's highly repetitive, that is very good for finding fast-moving asteroids and comets as they speak across the sky. Whereas Mm -hmm. Kepler was really optimized for, for kind of sitting and staring, holding very still for long periods of time, looking for the motion of a planet across the star. For us, our objects are moving pretty fast across the sky, so we we have to do a lot of repetitions, and we keep moving to keep up. That said, the survey pattern is highly repetitive, and it is very carefully optimized for finding this specific class of, of asteroid and comet.
0: A lot of the focus, of course, is on the spacecraft, because that's the, the more romantic stuff. But uh, from all of what you were talking about, it sounds like the ground operation will be equally important. What will that involve?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The ground processing system is a huge part of what makes the telescope effective. So basically we carry out this scan pattern uh, that allows us to get enough detections on a given asteroid or comet that we can get a pretty good fix on its orbit just from the initial discovery. After that, uh, as soon as we get the images, of course, the first thing we want to be able to do is vet them and make sure that they're really real. We do a very detailed comparison of anything that's in the image with a previously known background of stars and galaxies. We want to make sure we're not looking at something that's actually not moving on the sky. Uh, Then we also do a comparison to the other asteroids and comets that are known out there. and In particular, the main belt asteroids, things that are more distant, totally harmless to us. They outnumber the near-Earth objects by a pretty large number. There's about 1,000 times more of these objects than there are the, the targets that we're seeking, the ones that can get close. So we have to go and, and basically pick out these needles in the haystack to make sure we're finding the right ones. And that's a big part of the ground processing step, to make sure that the detections are really, really reliable.
0: Is NEO Surveyor going to uh, also contribute to the search for comets, which, of course, pose some danger...
3: Absolutely. Comets are an important part of the, of the target set for, for Surveyor because, uh, as you mentioned, I mean they really are something we do worry about from an impact perspective. Good news is there's a lot fewer of them compared to the near-Earth asteroids, and that's great. Not so good news is they're really a lot larger on average. They tend to be really large and they tend to move much, much faster with respect to the Earth than the asteroids do. So on balance, we certainly don't want to ignore the comets and we should mop up quite a few of them as part of the survey.
0: By the way, it was almost exactly one year ago that I had to drive way inland to get away from the coastal cloud cover here in the San Diego area. But I was rewarded by a beautiful view of uh, comet NEOWISE, uh, which I think you also were enjoyed and we're pretty proud of.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was a really, really fun find, especially coming at the time that it did with the pandemic. It was, was really nice to have something to kind of remind us to go outside and look up and know that we are part of a bigger picture. It was really a beautiful comet. And the cool thing about it is, you know, we're used to discovering these objects and seeing them on our computer screens as tiny little dots. And mm. I have to say, it was really something to be able to get out and see it in the sky with my own eyes and know that other people were enjoying it too. That was really fun. <laughs> I hope we find it, another one.
0: <laughs> it was it was thrilling. Yeah, I can't wait. I hope you find uh, one that uh, puts on at least that much of a show with uh, with Neo Surveyor. Talk about your team, beginning with your your former home, the the Jet Propulsion Lab. You have a lot of partners in Neo Surveyor.
3: Yeah, I mean, as is typical for a lot of these projects, it's uh, it's really a, a multi-party effort. We have, uh, we have partners from uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, of course, the University of Arizona, uh, where I'm based at. Uh, we're doing work on the detectors. So basically what we'll be doing is, is selecting the detectors that we're actually going to fly on the spacecraft. And uh, we got to sort through a great number of them to find the very best ones that we will pick and use to fly. Uh, we've also got industrial partners. Ball Aerospace will be contributing the spacecraft. So that's sort of the, the the main guts of the vehicle that has the communications antenna, the main spacecraft computer, all that good stuff, the power subsystem. Uh, the telescope is being built by JPL and will be integrated and delivered to uh, the payload integration shop, which is at Space Dynamics Lab in Utah.
1: Hmm. And they have
3: a lot of expertise in putting together and testing infrared imagers, just like this one. So we're really lucky to be partnered up with them. Uh, University of Rochester, I've been working with for years and years because they are the absolute pros at infrared detectors of this class going way back. So we've been working together for a long time. And of course, Tolodyne actually manufactures the chips they are the company that makes the very best chips of this class in the whole world. And I think that's not a, a brag to say that. They really are the best. So we've, uh, we've had a great partnership with all these different groups for quite a long time now as we've matured our design and technology. You know, to be honest, I think a lot of what makes it so fun to work on projects like these is if you have a great team of people who you really like, uh, it just makes it not so much work as fun. So um, yeah, it's, it's really a delight to get to work with everybody
0: boy that is also something that you share with a lot of other mission leaders that i that i talk to to clarify when you talk about the careful work being done to choose the detectors i mean you know what company they're coming from you're talking about evaluating each individual chip that will actually go into the telescope
3: yeah that's right so what we do is we make a whole bunch of these chips and we screen them we basically look through them and we find the ones that have the very best characteristics the least amount of noise I mean, everybody's got a camera where you've got one pixel that just is just bad. <laughs> you know. Or if you look at a laptop or something, there's so always irritating. a bad pixel. Yeah, or the screen <laughs> is cracked or something, right? So you want to find the chips that have the least number of bad pixels on them, the very best sensitivity, uh, very very best responsivity. And so that's what we'll do. We're, we're gearing up to sort out uh, which ones are going to be the very best. And we have a really beautiful lab. The university has given us great facilities uh, and that's been a lot of fun to get set up. And there's nothing like having a brand new lab to play with. <laughs> so
2: we're,
3: we're really getting going there and just having a lot of fun.
0: You said you're in phase B. Where does that put us? Uh, what are you shooting for in terms of a, a launch and getting out there to uh, first light at L1?
3: Right. So the launch date that we're shooting for right now, we're targeting March of 2026. That's based mm. on what we think is the budget profile that we're likely to receive from NASA and what we think is is reasonable given that budget profile. Uh, This type of mission, fortunately getting to L1, it's kind of in our backyard. It doesn't take us very long to get there. We're talking weeks, not years or anything like that. So it doesn't really have a very long cruise phase. We just, you know, pop over to L1, And we start doing this sort of big, lazy, looping orbit around the L1 Lagrange point, uh, just using little bits of our propulsion system to kind of just keep the orbit just in the way we want, keep us from drifting away from the Earth. And then we start observing. Uh, Basically, as soon as the telescope gets out there and gets on station, uh, we take a few weeks to cool down because we're going to radiatively cool. So we're going to be dumping all the heat that we brought with us from the Earth. The telescope will cool down in a matter of weeks. And once that's done, we will begin our science.
0: A matter of weeks. (laughs) That's uh, still an impressive uh, time to wait. I I mean, just to get down to the the ambient temperature of space so that you can really do the work that you want to do. It's just amazing to hear a figure like that. Do you have a ride yet? Do you know uh, what booster you're
3: going to be on? That's a really good question. We have not selected a launch vehicle provider yet, so I'm I'm looking forward to going through the process with NASA to evaluate which one is which, uh, which one we're going to wind up with. I think we do have a couple of very credible choices, and I'm confident we can get a good lift out into space. Fortunately, like I said, this orbit, people have done it before. It it doesn't take that long to get there.
0: Turning the page here a little bit, what is it with the the University of Arizona and the search for near-Earth objects, Catalina Sky Survey, spacewatch you arrived a couple of years ago which i think was kind of a coup for the campus and now the university is a full partner in neosurveyor the uh, the mission you lead this seems to be a real priority around there
3: yeah, well, this is one of the great things about U of A is uh, just the long tradition of doing this kind of work with asteroids. Of course, Arizona is known for its very clear, dark skies, and they are beautiful. If you haven't been to visit and do some stargazing, I highly recommend it. It really is gorgeous out in Arizona. The The thing about the campus is that the science uh, really is well aligned with work the university is already doing. You, you mentioned Catalina. About half of all the near-Earth objects that we know of to date are discovered or have been discovered by the Catalina Sky Survey, which is operated in the mountains uh, just outside of Tucson. And, of course, Spacewatch was one of the pioneering telescopes in surveying for near near-Earth objects, doing actually a dedicated survey for these things, not just so much discovering them serendipitously, serendipitously while doing other work. And, of course, uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission has been ongoing for a long time uh, at U of A, and they're bringing back a sample of a particular asteroid, the asteroid Bennu. So we're looking forward to that for all of these reasons, I think it, it really made you of a, a, a really great place to go for this, for this project. And uh, also too, I'm just enjoying, you know, working with students and um, just being part of university life again. It's, it's a lot of fun.
0: I miss it. I spent 30 years in uh, uh, on a university campus, and uh, I, I don't regret leaving for the Planetary Society, but I sure miss that atmosphere and, and being with all of those uh, lively young people. <laughs> and we love to follow OSIRIS-REx, by the way. Speaking of these sky surveys, how will Neil Neosurveyor complement the work that they are doing? I, I assume that the work kind of, maybe the data flow will flow both ways. How is that going to work?
3: This is a really team-intensive activity, planetary defense. And it, it really helps that we have multiple telescopes that, that kind of occupy multiple parts of phase space, if you will. Uh, For the Surveyor mission, we'll be looking in the regions near the sun on the sky, so we'll cover that volume of space. And we're looking using infrared wavelengths, so we're sensing the heat emitted by the asteroids and comets, as opposed to the sunlight that bounces off the surfaces. Now, the nice thing is if you have ground-based telescopes like Catalina, and you've got the PanSTAR survey, uh, the upcoming Rubin Observatory, you know these telescopes are operating using visible to, in some cases, near-infrared wavelengths. And when we can combine visible wavelengths, length data for asteroids with infrared data, now we can actually calculate a whole other range of parameters that we couldn't do before. From the infrared data, we get the sizes of the objects, but if we can combine it with visible light data, we can now calculate surface reflectivity, and that gives us a little bit of a clue as to what the objects might be made out of. It's sort of a proxy for the composition. If we have uh, complementary surveys looking at different places on the sky, we can kind of get different classes of orbital elements. In other words, some objects have different orbits from one another, and some telescopes are a little better at finding different types. So that's great. And of course, the more eyes on the sky, the better. We get better orbits, and we are more effective at putting together what I would call partial detections. In other words, one survey may see a few detections of an object, but not quite enough to really reliably identify it, and another can contribute the rest of the observations. So lots of reasons to, to use multiple telescopes.
0: Composition is kind of a big deal, isn't it? Fluff balls versus giant pieces of nickel and iron.
3: Absolutely. One of the interesting things we've learned from the OSIRIS-REx mission as well as uh, the Hayabusa 2 mission is that some of these objects are rubble piles. They seem to be Mm -hmm. loosely held together, kind of almost a ball of gravel, you could sort of think of it. And that's going to be very different in terms of how you might deflect such an object than, say, something that is more of a solid slab of metal. That's kind of what is interesting to me about these objects is that the influence of, of microgravity, of, you know, of the space environment, there's a whole host of different types of objects out there with different compositions, different porosities, different internal structure, and different internal strengths. And we need to be able to look at all of these different things if we ever find something that's headed our way.
0: You want to say something about the contributions of uh, amateur, or maybe I should say the so-called amateur astronomers?
3: Yeah, I would say uh, these are the the unpaid professionals, if you will, of the of the <laughs> asteroid world. We really rely heavily on them. Uh, these are folks who are incredibly skilled observers and, and very talented astronomers. They help us in a wide range of ways, uh, not the least of which is making sure that the objects don't get lost. You would think, you know, with the telescopes we have now that uh, we would always be able to find any asteroid anytime we want. Unfortunately, that is just not the case. A lot of times we see the objects and if we can't get additional detections of them from ground-based observers, we cannot reliably locate the objects again. This is where having a lot of friends in many different places really comes in handy. (laughs) And I can't tell you how many times with Neowise we've really scrambled and called folks in New Zealand, in England, all over the place, uh, just looking for additional observations wherever we can find them. That's been an important role for for the non-paid professional community, as well as uh, additional things like looking at the light curves of the objects. In other words, how does the object rotate? That tells us whether or not the object is likely to be elongated or more spherical. Also important for figuring out its true nature. So there's a whole host of things that, uh, that it's really great to have a community of folks who look at the objects for. It tells us a lot about them, make sure we don't lose them, and just about their very basic physical properties in nature.
0: Well, thank you for that. We're always fishing for compliments for those, uh, as you call them, unpaid professionals like our, our Shoemaker Neo uh, grant winners. You're going to launch, you hope, in 2026 and start looking for these. Uh, where would you hope we will be maybe 10 years later?
3: Well, my fondest hope for the observatory is that we find a whole bunch of asteroids and comets and we find out that none of them are going to get close to us anytime soon. That Amen. would be the very best result. I will be very happy if that's the result. Actually,
0: <laughs> before we wrap up here, give us a status report on Neowise, uh, which is um, kind of a senior citizen up there.
3: <laughs> it really is. I have to say, I am I'm surprised beyond all measure at how long this telescope has lasted. Uh, it really was only supposed to last for six months plus a one orbit in our in orbit checkout phase, and that was uh, well, that was in 2010 that that all happened. So <laughs> it's been a really long time since the spacecraft uh, launched. And and we, we've been very, very fortunate that it's lasted as long as it has. It really was not supposed to. The sun has had a lot to do with that, surprisingly. It turns out that solar activity has a significant impact on how much drag forces uh, the atmosphere in the, in the upper layers, uh, right around 500 kilometers, how much force that can exert on a spacecraft like NEOWISE. In this case, the sun's been really quiet the last few years. And that has meant that there's been decreased drag force on this telescope uh, which meant has meant that the orbit has not decayed as fast as we thought it would initially. So that's the good news. It's really taught us a lot about the near-Earth asteroids, just in terms of their numbers, uh, the reflection or the ratio of bright to dark objects, in other words, uh, how many of these dark objects are out there in the population. It's taught us about that. And of course, it's done a pretty good job of helping to fill in the knowledge that we have of the objects that are darker and therefore more difficult to detect if you're looking for them with a reflected light telescope. Uh, so it's it's really been the little spacecraft that could, and uh, we hope we can get a little more time out of it. Uh, we have just been granted a two-year mission extension, which is just yeah. really wonderful. And uh, we hope that the sun stays nice and quiet. Hopefully it will. <laughs> <laughs> but that's hard to predict.
0: <laughs> Great statement of confidence. And we have that same hope, by the way, because uh, our light sail, which is... Uh, just about the same kind of orbit or height anyway uh, above the Earth that uh, Neowise is, has also benefited from that relatively quiet sun. Amy, I got just one other thing to ask you about. And it's uh, really a story that I told you a few days ago, but I will repeat for the audience. Uh, Since it's not just doing science that that, that you do, but you like to talk about it, my five-year-old grandson, delightful little Rowan, uh, was watching a show on the iPad the other day, and I heard a familiar voice. And I go over, and of course, it was Ready, Jet, Go. There was you talking about science. And my, my grandson looks up to me, because he knows that Baba loves space, and says, Baba, this star is a red dwarf.
3: <laughs> hey, that's great. <laughs>
0: You are doing good work. Uh talk about this. I mean Ready Jet Go but also just the importance of of sharing, you know, what the boss likes to call the the passion beauty and
3: joy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it it's been really a, a an absolute blast to work on Ready Jet Go and and that's just been a ton of fun, not the least of which because the team who who wrote the show, the people who produced it really really care about teaching kids science. I think the most important thing is, you know, you just summed it up. Science is about Learning about nature and having fun learning about nature. It's its just its how we understand and interpret the world around us. Uh, it really, really is fascinating. And you could just never get bored. There's always something to learn. One of the things I love about working with kids is that they are just naturally in touch with that kind of curiosity and that, and that mm. just happiness that comes from figuring out how something works. You want them to never lose it.
0: And you are so good at this, uh, not just for little kids, but big ones like me, and I suspect a lot of our audience out there. Uh, Amy, it always makes it a great pleasure to talk with you, and I'll just congratulate you again on this two-year extension for Neowise, and perhaps not very far away from having this much more powerful instrument up there, trying to do, uh, that's that other thing that the boss likes to say, all we're trying to do is save the world. Thank you, Amy.
3: Thank you so much, and thanks to the Planetary Society for all of your support over the years. Uh, It's just really been wonderful, and we are very, very fortunate to get to do this work.
0: NEO Surveyor Mission Lead, Amy Meinzer. A quick message, and then we'll hear from Bruce.
3: There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss
2: the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here again is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That is Bruce Betts. Do you remember that funny random space fact that you provided us? Uh, JWST could detect bumblebees thermal signatures
2: on the moon? Uh, yes. It was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I assume you have a follow-on.
0: Well, I don't. Daniel Kazard in the UK does. Daniel is the guy who sends us these funny little pastiches, these cartoons every week. He has done this great drawing. Uh, The caption is, note in space, no one can hear you poot. And one bumblebee is saying to another who looks like he's got a little rocket of gas coming out of his rear end. Where else? He says, don't use your thruster. They can detect our heat signals now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> way to keep it classy <laughs> I know can I still check the box that says this is a clean episode? I think so I think I think that's PG uh, tell us about the night sky
2: alrighty uh, low-ish in the western sky in the early evening you'll find super bright Venus, Jupiter and Saturn coming up in the east in the early mid-evening August 2nd, Saturn will be at opposition on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. So by then it'll be rising around sunset and setting around sunrise. Jupiter's the bright guy and Saturn is the yellowish one to its upper right if you look at them in the evening. Oh, and one more thing. On July 24th, the Moon will be joining them and be in between Jupiter and Saturn, making for a lovely triumvirate. I don't know if those words have ever been combined before.
0: I think that works. So there will be this short period when we won't be able to talk to Cassini, right? Oh, shoot.
2: (laughs) Okay. There's so much wrong with what you just said. (laughs) First of all, a, a sad homage to Cassini, whose mission ended and was crashed into Saturn on purpose. But also, no, that's the other thing. That's conjunction when it's on the other side of the sun, not that it matters because the spacecraft's dead, but this is opposition. You can talk all you want if your spacecraft is alive and communicating.
0: I forgot my joke should have been, we'll be able to communicate with Cassini much more quickly. now. Oh,
2: Oh, yeah. Now it's funny. Let's quickly move on to this week in space history. It was 1969 Apollo 11 returned from the moon with those humans aboard. In 1984, Svetlana Savitskaya became the first woman to walk in space. And in 2019, the Planetary Society's Lightsail 2 spacecraft successfully deployed its solar sail. And where were you for that deployment? Actually, where
0: were you and I and several other lucky people? (laughs)
2: in space oh no just in my mind i was in space uh which is the safest way to fly Uh, we were in san luis obispo california at cal poly san luis obispo uh, where our communications is coordinated out of with the spacecraft we were all there being excited and tense and uh, you can find a nice video on our youtube channel of that experience
0: yeah, we covered it on uh, Planetary Radio about two years ago as well. It was, it was so exciting to be up there, just as it was for the launch. And LightSail is going to come up again later
2: in the show. Ooh, I'm so excited. On to <laughs> random space bag. Cue the maniacal laughter. <laughs> Viking, Lander, oh, sorry. Viking Lander 1 was originally scheduled to land on Mars on July 4th, 1976, the bicentennial of the United States. But when they got there, pictures showed the landing area looked too rough. So they delayed the landing to July 20th at a different location, July 20th, putting it on the 7th anniversary of humans first walking on the moon.
0: As you were saying last week, July 20th has become a, a real red-letter day in, uh, in space history.
2: It has indeed.
0: We have uh, a good contest to go on to here. Uh, get us started.
2: The James Webb Space Telescope that we heard about a couple episodes ago will be stationed at the Earth-Sun Lagrange Point 2, or L2. My question to you was, what was the first spacecraft stationed at Earth-Sun L2? How'd we do? We got very consistent, correct answers from almost
0: everybody who entered this week, and we had a pretty good crowd, too. I will allow our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild, in Kansas to answer your question. WMAP was a NASA Explorer that launched back in 2001. It flew on a Delta, then went to Lagrangian point number two for its run. It showed Stephen Hawking the proof of inflation. He said... This expands the frontier. I'd say it's exciting. The best I've seen yet found in physics throughout my career.
2: WMAP, right? <laughs> WMAP, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, taught us all sorts of stuff about the origins of the universe and the timing of it and, and the like. And they were the first to hang out at Earth Sun L2, which, as a reminder, is on the anti-sun side of the Earth Earth from the sun and is a relatively stable gravitational point so you don't have to use a lot of fuel to hang out there and you get away from all the interference of the earth and the moon
0: and this is doubly relevant since we were just talking to uh, amy meinzer about hanging out at l1 the uh, sun earth uh, lagrangian point one
2: so that puts you towards the sun l2 puts you away from the sun
0: here's our winner It has been since October 19, 2019, that is, uh, when he had his first win, Chip Kaplove in California, who said, yeah, WMAP launched June 30th, 2001, uh, reached L2, what, about three months later? And uh, he says, look forward to your show every week. Thanks for all you do to bring us the magic of the solar system and beyond. Uh, Congratulations, Chip. You have won yourself a gorgeous planetary radio t-shirt which we will be um, offering uh, once again in in just moments on our new contest i have some other stuff of course laura dodd in california says there are only two l2 spacecraft currently operating four more are planned to arrive in the next 10 or so years one of those of course the jwst daniel sorkin in new york said that uh, WMAP was later moved to a heliocentric orbit to avoid posing a hazard to future missions. We don't want it to get too crowded up there, those uh, those Lagrangian points, right? Harry Rao asks a question that only you could answer, Bruce. Uh, Harry is in Texas.
2: <laughs> is it about my childhood?
0: No, no, but uh, I, I will save those. Could we position light sail at any of the Lagrangian points? And
2: if we did that, would it be stable? You cannot position light sail to itself because we can't get out of low Earth orbit where drag pulls us down. But you can position a solar sail spacecraft. And in fact, one of the uses that's been proposed for solar sails is to put them... At the Earth-Sun L1, so where Amy Meinser was talking about, so that you, and actually instead of going to L1 where you you can put normal spacecraft, you can go closer to the sun than L1 and give more warning of solar storms that are coming, because you can use the solar sail to balance the forces and be in a place that otherwise would not be stable. Harry, great answer, huh? Thanks for asking.
0: And uh, Bruce, with that, we're ready to go on to a new contest.
2: Name all the people who have flown longer than one year, so longer than 365 days, uh, who have flown longer than one year in space on on single missions, so that the people who uh-huh. have spent more than a year in space at one time, go to planetary.org slash radio contest.
0: Sorry, Captain Scott Kelly. That's a, I'm giving you a little gimme there for some of you out there, but a great <laughs> book and endurance that he has written about his uh, almost long enough time up there. You have until the 28th, that'd be July twenty eighth at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer for this one. And like I said, win yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt.
2: Okay, everybody, let's go out there, look up in the night sky and think about mingling with fish in space. Thank you and good night.
0: Uh, Okay, bumblebees first, now fish. Why, are there fish on the ISS? I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Okay, somebody alert Kilgore Trout, please. Uh, That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who are all defenders of Earth. You won't get a superhero costume if you join them, but the work is no less rewarding. Learn more at planetary.org join. Thank you for those ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts. Mark Hilverde and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.